Tradition, right? Can you hear it? Fiddler on the roof? Tradition. We got a few guys in this congregation who could sing that song pretty well. Tradition or command? The tradition of the elders, which we all have, the elders have it, the youngers have it, we, we've all been shaped, we all have traditions, or the ultimate standard, the only and forever authority, the Word of God. That's the question of this text. And lest we do what we often do, which is pile up on the Pharisees, those religious bad guys, this text is not only for us in so many ways, and I feel deep conviction here personally, it is about us. It is about the, the minors that we've made majors. It's about the little things that we've made ultimate things that not only separate us from God, but from one another, and most importantly, separate the gospel of God from those he most longs to bring into this kingdom, which is the freaks and the weirdos and the people that don't really know our tradition. By the way, it's Santa Fe. Those folks aren't hard to find. You know, look in the mirror or knock on your next door neighbor's house. As an illustration, I just, you know, I wonder, I wonder if you would believe that it's possible that, you know, John and I could be honestly any cooler than we are right now. But it's, it's true. There was a point in my life, young skater Greg, when I knew the good music, you know, I was just kind of up with a little bit of the style, and this would have been early high school, and I had right here on this lobe a little silver stud. Had my ear pierced, which was the coolest thing in the world that you could do. And I was a Christian, so I talked about how my ear was pierced, like it talks about in the Old Testament. I'm a slave to the Lord. And I would go around telling everybody this story. Had a little stud. It was nothing too fancy. All right, little stud for a little stud, okay? And, and you know, but I was pretty cool. Little skater Greg with his, his, his little ear pierced. And I took a trip one time. I remember we went to San Diego's little skateboard trip. And we were these hooligan like Christian skaters. So we got our skateboards and we got Bibles. And we are skateboarding around you know, the, uh, the gas lamp district near downtown San Diego, having fun, being safe, drinking Diet Cokes, being with our friends. And all of a sudden, we see some folks on the other side of the street, and they have these like Bible signs. Now, we were young and passionate about Jesus and foolish and naive. And we probably should have read those signs, you know, turn or burn, but we didn't. We're like, oh, there's some cool people with Bibles. So I remember we skated right up to these guys, and there's a guy with his Bible, and he's yelling at everybody, and we don't quite understand what's going on, but, we, you know, hey, we're, we're Christians too. That's awesome. You guys are sharing God's word down here. It wasn't quite very awesome, but we didn't know that. And I just remember this guy looked at me. He stopped what he was doing. He looked me straight in the eye, and he goes, are you trying to look like a woman? 15 years old. Like, he was crushing it was truly crushing. Like, okay, I mean, have, you know, have whatever you p opinion you want about 15-year-old skaters with, you know, little studs on the right ear, but just, just crushing to be like, oh, I guess we came to talk about God, and you guys have Bibles, but we're doing it wrong, so, and we, you know, we just, we just kind of went away sad. The force of that story is partly why Jesus takes this so very Seriously. Traditions are not wrong. We, we should have 
good and important traditions in our lives, in our church, in our family, in our country. The danger, as Jesus points out in verse 7, is when we teach as doctrines the commandments of men. That is, we elevate to the level of God's word, doctrine, thus saith the Lord, our preferences, which by the way, we all have. And that's part of the beauty and the mess and the challenge and the glory of the church. Let me just look around. We got older, we got younger, we got different ethnicities, we got different backgrounds, we got people born in Santa Fe, we have transplants, we have it all. What could bring this motley crew together other than something bigger than all of those things? Namely, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that for all of you, regardless of your traditions, there's real hope. There's real hope to be forgiven, to be loved, to be fully known and fully loved, to be saved from sin and not just saved from sin, but unto the embrace and inclusion of God through the Son to be counted and adopted as a son or a daughter of the living God, despite our differences. When we make our minors into the necessary majors of others, this does real damage to our souls. Firstly, because it lies about the very heart of God. The very heart of God is, is to reach out to those who in, in so many ways, according to the traditions of the elders, may be doing it wrong, but he longs to have them in his family. Remember the parable of the wedding feast. He invites the guests. They don't want to come. He says, go out to the streets and get the riffraff. Get the crazy folks. Get the homeless folks. Bring them in here to my banquet that I might feed them because they're the ones who actually know that they're hungry. So in our text, Mark presents a confrontation. Mark, Mark is doing work on you and on me. He just wants us to ask, he's continually getting us to ask the question, what will you choose? The religion of man or the son of man? Life according to the law which kills, because no matter how many rules you add, you're still a rule breaker, and it's still not enough to get to you to God? Life by the law that kills, or life in the son? who saves, who takes hearts of stone and makes them hearts of flesh. That's the question before us now as we, we enter into this text. Verse 1 tells us that when the Pharisees gathered with some of the scribes, legal scholars, the best legal scholars, and Mark is already cueing us in here to the building of tension. Every good story, right? Every good story has, has tension that needs to be resolved. We see in the text that this is more than just, the, oh, let's go see what this cool guy Jesus is doing. We've heard about him. He seems nice. He seems like a good teacher. Way up there in the ghetto northern part of Galilee where nothing important ever happens and no one cool comes from. No. These guys put on their best robes, bedazzled, super cool hats, rhinestones, and they are walking 90 miles up from Jerusalem to confront Jesus. This is an inquisition. And they've come not only to hear what he's doing, but to shut it down. To shut it down. You see, we have, we have some rules here, which is if you want to be in the in-group, in the in-crowd, you need to listen to the rules committee. The rules committee says you got to wash your hands and your pots and your couches and all this stuff in just this way. That's how we show forth God's holiness and his glory and his goodness. And Jesus is walking around doing crazy stuff. He's touching the untouchable. He's talking to people that you don't talk to. Women at wells in the middle of the day who know why they're there. They've come to shut him down. 
And I think it's important for us to see why. Or else, again, we're so prone, aren't we? Christians love to do this. Pastors love to do this because of the emotional punch of it to just beat up on the Pharisees. But to do that would do the very opposite of what the text is trying to do because it would create an us and them situation when what Mark is saying is, actually, Nathan to David, you are the man. Pastor, with your one finger pointed and your three pointed back at you. The Pharisees were trying to honor the Lord. They were were not, you know, just a bunch of hyper-religious chumps, you know, aimlessly meandering around the Old Testament, you know, cherry-picking the stuff that they liked. No, they thought they were taking the most important marrow of the Old Testament, applying it, applying it as rigorously as possible so that they might be separated from this unclean world. Rather than be in the world and not of it, free, filled with the Holy Spirit, confident in Christ, no, we're going to separate ourselves. Them bad, we good. Them rule break, we rule keep. Them wrong politic, us right politic. Them unspiritual, us spiritual. And so their love of the law, albeit misguided, in some sense, what was motivated by a desire to really, to really honor the Lord, to be morally pure and above and beyond so that maybe they could convince God after 400 years of silence and waiting and pain that now is the time, Lord, when you should send Mashiach, send Messiah now because we're ready to get these Romans out of our land. We're ready for the freedom that we think we need and the time that we think we need it. And what is Jesus always doing? Taking our little expectations of him, so cute, so nice, put him in a box, white robe, hair straightener, He's so nice. You know, he's so polite. He kisses all the babies in town and just blowing that out of the water. To them, Jesus was unauthorized. Like trying to build your new casita up in the historic district. No permit. No permit. He hasn't been to rabbinical school. He hasn't played by their rules. He didn't go to Harvard. He doesn't have an MDiv. And I think it's important for us to see ourselves in this text. Because if it were to happen right now, I kind of think a lot of us would react in the same way. Religious folks like me, especially people like me, I have more incentive than any of you because I get paid to do this. I'm a professional religious person. And it'd be like Jesus, a mechanic coming down from Espanola. 30-year-old mechanic from Espanola rolling up into Santa Fe, coming in to behold the glory of the diamond plaster, saying, actually, you guys are doing it wrong. I think we're here too. Well, what's the main issue for the Pharisees? The main issue is that the disciples of Jesus are not washing their hands and other things according to the tradition of the elders. Now, the tradition of the elders, what is that? It's the oral tradition at this point in time. It will be written down a few hundred years later and referred to as the midrash. At this point... It's referred to the halakha, the oral tradition, rabbi after rabbi interpreting God's law. And there was a stream of belief at this time. Again, in the second temple period, Herod's temple, they're awaiting the Messiah. The more we do, the more rules we keep, the more we interpret, the more we can get closer to the guarantee that God will be ready to come and meet us. But see, the problem with that, and again, to not not paint with too harsh a brush here, but that's paganism. That is the very heart of every single man-made religion. 
It may be blatantly on the front page of the book or it may be in the fine print or the footnote or the legalese in the back that you can't understand. But somewhere in there, there's the belief that you have to do something to get to God. You have to do something, some work, some merit, some acceptability so that he will see you and be okay with you and move toward you. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is the opposite of that. It's not that you are a a, a needy person. Oh, Lord, help me with the medicine. I'm asking you. It's that, no, you are dead in your sins and trespasses. You're at the bottom of the sea with an anchor around your ankle. And you don't need medicine. You need a resurrection. That's why this emphasis on ceremonial cleanness and hand washing was so abhorrent to Jesus because it it had a negative effect on the people of God in a few specific ways. The first is this, that it burdened the people with rules that weren't for them. The Old Testament does talk about washing your hands, by the way. It's in Exodus 30, Exodus 40. There's references in Deuteronomy. When Yahweh is giving instructions to Moses about the tabernacle and the temple and the work of the priests in that special place, doing that special thing, he does give some instructions about cleanliness and holiness as a picture to the people about God's glory and perfect moral purity. But what did the Pharisees do? They said, well, if that's good enough for the temple and the priests, it must be good enough for everybody. And this is so often what tradition becomes. Taking a good thing, making it an ultimate thing. Taking a a truth of God's word that's specific, and applying it to everyone at all times in a way that then for them became an unbearable burden. But it's worse than that because not only does this hand washing and cleanliness and unending litany of, of ceremonial rules apply to those that it doesn't apply to, but it essentially creates two classes of Jews at the time. So not only are the Pharisees separate from the bad world out there, but now they're separate from the bad Jews over here. And this us-them mentality, which is the antithesis of the gospel, is always what happens when we resort to what we speak of as legalism. The law is good. If you don't hear this this morning, we're in trouble. (laughs) The law of God is good. The law of God, especially think about the Ten Commandments. The law of God reflects His perfect, holy character and nature. The law is inherently good as it reflects God's Goodness and perfection. But legalism is bad. Legalism says that if you do these rules and keep these laws, you can earn your way to God, and that's not true at all. In fact, what does Jesus do with the law? He goes to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, others who are gathered at the foot of the Sermon on the Mount. He stands in the place of the new Moses, he goes up on the hill, and he sits down to teach. And he says, you're all pretty serious about God, aren't you? I can tell by your cloaks and your pointy hats and your bedazzlement. You're very serious about God. You know, all that korban that people were paying that wasn't going to take care of the parents in the old age, but instead was a temple gift that they could no longer use to help their parents, provided some sweet silk for these guys. Jesus looks at him and goes, you're pretty serious. It's good. Pretty serious about the law. Here's their problem. They were nowhere near serious enough. Nowhere near serious enough. Jesus gets all the moral, religious people at the Sermon on the Mount, gathers them all together. Does he confront the 
the hurting person over here, the leper over here, the sinner over here? Yeah, he does. But his greatest ire is reserved for those who are full of, of the most noxious form of righteousness, religious self-righteousness, the most noxious form of pride. Okay, let me get this straight. You guys care about the law. Don't murder, right? How many in the crowd have, have hated their brother or been really angry with someone or not forgiven someone or really struggled to forgive someone or have bitterness or gossip or a root of pain that just won't go away? You're murderers. <laughs> oh, I know, I know. None of you have ever committed adultery. Good, congratulations. You know, here's a little tiny cross in my pocket rose to pin on your nose. How many have lusted with their eyes after men, after women, after things that aren't theirs that God hasn't given because they're not content and he's not enough? Do you see what the law does? If you try to live by the law, you will be crushed by the law because what the law of God does it, as a revelation of his perfect holiness and character is it shows us that actually, no matter how many rules we add, we can't keep it because it's not a problem of what's on the outside. It's a problem of the heart. And we are... God help us, lawbreakers. Their problem wasn't that they were too serious about the law. They weren't near serious enough. Jesus sees all this and his answer is both swift and blunt. I hope you don't miss these startling words in the text. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that if you said this in high school, you know, outside of Taco Cabana or the pantry or wherever you are, this was like a fight broke out when you said this. Well did Isaiah prophesy, prophesy of you, you hypocrites. Hypocrites. The Greek word conjures up this idea of actors. These are the ones who wear a mask. These are the ones who look like they have it all together on the outside, but, but inside there's deadness. Inside their heart is deadness because their heart pushes away those who bear the image of God based on the rules they think they're keeping to earn the favor of God. <laughs> it's a double backfire. Hypocrites, he says, you guys are the ones playing the game. Or to quote Paul in 2 Timothy, and I mean, I'm just going to be honest with you. When I hear this verse, there is fear and trembling for me in this. In fact, if any of this were based on how good of a Christian you are, then I'm giving up and I'm going to go find a cooler religion where I get crystals and, you know, bread and incense and I don't have to come to church on Sunday or give money. Unless Jesus is absolutely for us, the work is finished, he has done it all, this would be absolutely devastating. Because Jesus says to these folks, quoting Isaiah chapter 29 and related to 2 Timothy 3.5, you have an appearance of godliness, but you deny its power. You have an appearance of godliness, but you deny its power. Or to go to Matthew 24 and 25, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these religious things? And how is it that Jesus will say, when someone was thirsty out there, you gave him nothing to drink. When they were naked, you didn't clothe them. When they were starving and hungry, you didn't feed them. And, and although there's an application here in a literal sense, you know, like bottled water and sack lunches, that's true. The real feeding and the real thirsting is about the good news of the gospel. An appearance of godliness, but denying its power. What's the power? 
Well, let me tell you. The only thing, if you call yourself a Christian, if I call myself a Christian, a little Christ, the only thing we have to offer anyone is not, you know, my good life, I'm upstanding, I'm moral, I'm doing great, I've been successful, look at my career, you know, look at my stock portfolio, I'm doing well, kids are doing well, grandkids are doing well, these are all good things. And they're all good things that everybody in other religions is also doing as well. The only thing we have to offer is I couldn't save myself. I met this man, Jesus, and he showed me that I could not save myself. I could not find within myself my own righteousness. I could not bring to him any goodness, any deeds, any merit, any earnings, anything that could stand before the blazing and consuming fire of his holiness. And yet that God, that Father, sent his Son, not to meet me halfway, not for me to do 20% and him to do 80, but that Father sent his Son to do all of it on my behalf that all I need to do is believe. All I need to do is simply, even with the mustard seed of faith, say, Jesus, I trust that you have done it all. That God, who takes the law more seriously than we ever could, sent his son to keep the law perfectly, that his son might die under the law, in perfection according to the law, with righteousness, bear the weight of our sin and the justice of God, and do more than that, impute to us the very righteous law-keeping of Christ himself, because we couldn't do it on our own. That's all we have to offer. And that's why this is such a big deal to Jesus. Because he's trying to draw to himself little children. And he sees the Pharisees, they are creating a separatist kingdom with high walls. And Jesus says, you don't, you don't need high walls. Let's have low walls. Low walls. A, a turtle fence. Let's build us a little turtle fence around the kingdom, but let's have a really deep well. A really deep well. And let's Let's allow that well as it taps into the heart of God to be filled with the living water of Jesus Christ. You know what that means? Anyone can come to the church of God. Anyone. And we don't need to sort them out. <laughs> we don't need to sort them out. They can, they can get over the turtle fence. Wow, that was really easy to get in here. Amen. The only thing that sorts anyone out is the water in the well. Some will take a cup of that water and it will be for them living. This is what I've been longing for my whole life. To be really, truly seen in all my brokenness, all my pain, trauma, shame, issues, needs, revealed, exposed, fully known, and yet because of what God has done in Jesus, fully loved. This is living water. I want to drink this water. Some will take the cup from that well, and to them it will be bitter herbs. To them it will be the God that says, look, you've you got to lay it all down. You don't submit to the traditions of men, but you submit to my word. My word has authority. That means in every area of our lives. There's no little private place for us Christians to hide and say, God, that one's off limits. No. And so to some, that water will be bitterness. But, but the heart of God is that is that we as people would, would keep the walls low so that all might hear this good news of the gospel, this invitation to the wedding and come and at least have an opportunity to taste and see the living water of God through Jesus, his son. 
this has everything to do with our witness in Santa Fe. Perhaps what's most dangerous about the way of the Pharisees here isn't their insult to God. God is secure, okay? He can handle your insults. He can handle them. He's, he's not insecure. He's solid. He's strong. Perhaps it's not even their pushing away of the other Jews, for if they believe, they too are in the covenant community, even if they were ostracized and demonized by the Pharisees. But most grievous here is, is the pushing away of the lost. And as I think about our church coming up on 20 years in August, do you know that? This August, 20 years anniversary for Christ Church Santa Fe. Praise the Lord. A church was planted in... Oh, we're going to do that? Let's do that. All right. All right. Wow, it must be Pentecost Sunday because the Presbyterians started clapping. <laughs> Hallelujah. Um, we're a church plant 20 years ago. We were planted by a church planting network that came out of a church that was planted, healthy churches growing and planting churches. God has been with us to help plant some other works. And when I dream about the future of this church, when I dream about the next 20 years, what I long for, what I long for is that this place would, would be full of folks who don't know the rules. That this place would be full of folks like 15-year-old skater Greg who don't know the rules. Because I believe that that's the heart of God. Not that you wash your hands and your cups and your couch. Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. But instead that people of all stripes would come in here and hear some actual good news. Not, hey, new religion, self-help. Here's the way to have your best life now in Santa Fe. Instead, some actual good news for broken and needy people, which is God knows that you need to be cleaned. He knows that you need to be washed. He knows that you need to be forgiven. And he sent his son to do all of those things so that by the finished work of Jesus, you might be set free. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your good word to us in Mark chapter 7. I will confess, Lord, that this is convicting to me, and it's challenging. It's convicting because if I'm honest, I do see little traditions, little preferences, so many preferences. The way things are done in my life, you know, my upbringing, my experience in church, whatever. And I am prone, just like these religious leaders, to exalt those preferences to the place of doctrine. Lord, help. Jesus, help us in that. And yet I am so thankful, God, that this word, this rebuke, is actually good news. Because, Lord, most of us here, we, we want to not only honor you with our lips, but with our heart. And so what do you do? You, you allow us to hear the gospel preached in your word, you know, and then you yell at us and tell us to get out of here and try harder and do better next time and come back next week. No having allowed us the grace of hearing this good news that Jesus has done it all for us. We are clean and holy and whole because we are in him. We're invited to feast at his table. And Lord, I'm so thankful that your invitation goes to not only those who have it together or look like they do, but even those who are wrestling and struggling and their faith is as small as a mustard seed. So as we come now to feast spiritually, 
on the promises provided at this table. Jesus, would you remind us that this, this is the beauty of your word. This is why nothing, no wall, no fence can get in the way of the living water of the well because it is your desire that we come not in our perfection but in our need so that you might meet those needs again and again with your mercy, your grace, and your love. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.